Edmund Burke said that very seldom does a man take a giant step from life of virtue and goodness into a life of vice and corruption. Usually he begins his journey into evil by taking little steps into shaded areas, areas tinted and colored just a bit, almost unnoticed by those around him. Until one day, hardly aware that he has made the journey, he finds himself firmly entangled in a life of vice and corruption. Many times people end up where they had not intended to be. They end up there because they may have obeyed the Gospel, but they've wandered away. They've gone back into the world. And I think that we see what we're talking about here in many different examples in the Old Testament where people started out very faithful to God, and I'm sure that their intention was to remain faithful to God, but then over the course of time, they slowly were led away from God. Their love that they had for God kind of dwindled away. I think that we can find an example of that in the book of Judges with Samson. In the, book of Sam, in the book of Judges, we can read about the life of Samson, and almost everyone in this room this morning knows the story of Samson. Samson was a man of God from birth to manhood. His life was dedicated to God. He started the morning with God, he spent the day with God, and he ended the day with God. But then gradually, Samson started to flirt with sin. And little by little, evil came into his life. And then in Judges chapter 16 and verse 20, we read one of the most startling and disappointing verses in all the Bible. In Judges chapter 16 and verse 20, it says, I will go out as at other times before, and shake myself, and he wist not that the Lord had departed from him. If you know the story of Samson, you know that many times he went out and battled the Philistines and was victorious. But when Delilah said, the Philistines are be upon you, Samson, Samson got up and thought that he was going to go and he was going to conquer the Philistines again. The sad thing is that the Lord had departed from Samson and Samson did not even realize it himself. Isn't that sad? Isn't that a sad situation that we find in Samson's situation? Samson had been so deeply entangled in sin that God could not stand to be around him anymore. And so God left him. And Samson, once a great man of God, was so insensitive to the presence of God that when God left... Samson didn't even realize it. And then in the next scene, we see where Samson's grinding in the millhouse. His eyes had been put out. And you see the devastation that had taken place. There's another example in the Old Testament, and that's King Saul. The sun comes up on his life and we see beautiful a beautiful beginning for Samuel or Sam or Saul. I'll get the name right here a minute. He is a man whom God loved. And he loved God. But gradually 
King Saul turns his back on God. And we see many different storm clouds begin to collect around his life. And finally, he can't see the sun anymore because God's left him. God's left him. And as we read in his story the account of the things that he did, we find that he went to the witch of Andor to get information, seeking help from the evil powers because those were the forces that were controlling his life. Again, an individual who started out in a good situation, in a good way with God, but yet gradually over the course of time, we see where his love for God was replaced for evil. It isn't the giant steps that we take from virtue into corruption that we need to be fearful of. It's the little steps and that ultimately lead us away from God. How many times have we looked at a Christian and we've seen that they were very faithful, they were excited, they obeyed the Gospel, they were excited for Christ, and yet over the course of time, you see them drift back into the world. And perhaps maybe you're in that situation today where your love for the Lord isn't what it used to be. It isn't the same as it was when you obeyed the Gospel. When you think about the Ethiopian eunuch, he, got, he, he was baptized. The Bible tells us, Acts chapter 8, that they both went down in the water. Philip baptized him. He came up out of that water rejoicing and he went on his way rejoicing. And as I mentioned earlier, do you think that when he got home that he did not tell anyone what he had done? Do you think that he remained silent about obeying the Gospel, about what he had heard, the good news about Christ? Or do you think that he shared that information with other people? And how many of us were baptized into Christ? We had that same joy. We went to work. We went to school. We went to our neighbors. We went around the people that we knew, that we were in close contact with, that we loved, and we shared the Gospel with them. We told them what we did in hopes that they would do the same thing themselves. But has our love for the Lord faded over the years? You have your Bible, turn with me over to Revelation chapter 2. Remember, it's not the giant steps that we, that we take, it's the little steps that we take that can lead us astray. The church at Ephesus is there being considered in Revelation chapter 2. And in Revelation chapter 2, the Lord is going and looking at the congregations of His people. And he looks at the church at Ephesus, and this is what he says beginning in verse 1 of Revelation 2. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labors, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars." 
and has borne and has patience, and for my name's sake hath labored and has not fainted. Let's stop right there. When you look at a congregation like that, who would not want to be a part of a congregation that did all of those great things? They couldn't tolerate someone that was a false person, a false apostle, a false teacher. They couldn't handle that. They didn't want that around them. They worked, they labored, they were patient. All the good qualities that God mentions, or Jesus mentions as He looks at that congregation. Wouldn't you be happy to be a part of that congregation? I would venture to say that most of us would want to be a part of a congregation that had that reputation with the Lord. Not the people in the community. With the Lord. That's what the Lord's looking at. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Listen to what He says in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. You do all of these great things, but yet you've left your first love. I don't imagine that their forsaking their first love happened in one giant step. It wasn't that just one day they decided not to love God anymore, but it was gradual. For a while, their love for God was so great and so infectious that people were drawn to their fellowship. People wanted to be a part of the church at Ephesus. I'm sure that great sermons were preached and wonderful things had taken place. And they were known far and wide for their steadfast faithfulness even in the face of persecution. But then people who used to pray a lot gradually stopped praying. People that used to give a lot, money, time, energy, effort, stopped giving a lot of time, energy, money, and effort. People who used to tell the lost about Christ gradually stopped telling the lost about Christ until finally when Jesus looked at the church, He said, this I have against you. You have forsaken your first love. How sad. We see that every day in society where marriages that have lasted a long time are loveless. They don't have love in it. It is dysfunction. And I'm sure that there are congregations that have the same attitude where they do everything right, but they're just not motivated by that love that they had at the beginning. Jesus says you've forsaken your first love. I have three questions that I want us to consider this morning. The first question is this. What is first love? I have noticed over the course of time that when you're in the midst of an elderly couple that has been married for a long time and if they've had a good marriage, and you say, how did you meet? What happens? A big smile comes on their face. 
They start reminiscing about what took place, how they met, what they were doing, where they were at, and they can give you every detail about what they were wearing, what they looked like, how they reacted, who was around, where they were at, all of those things. And if you talk to a young couple that wants to get married, what do, what, what, what do they talk about? They talk about each other. They talk about being in love. And they reminisce and they talk about what they're going to do when they get married, how life is going to be great. And you ask them the tough questions about, well, what are you going to do in this situation? I don't know, but we're going to live on love. Did you ever say that? Josh didn't. But sometimes that's what people do. That's the way first love is. It loves the object of its affection without reservation. It is being totally head over heels in love. Now, what's first love in God's sight? It's that love that first brought you to God. It's that love that you experienced when you saw the cross as it really was and that Jesus died on that cross for your sins. He died for what you did. And when you recognize that the blood of Jesus was shed for your sin and you were overwhelmed with amazing love for God and for Christ. And so you became a child of God and you experienced His forgiveness when you were washed in the blood through the watery grave of baptism through your obedience to His will. First love looks at mountains and troubles and sees them as hills and to be conquered. First love looks at rivers of grief and worry that may rise in life and they say that's nothing. With God's help, we can overcome. We can make it through. First love looks at stumbling blocks and sees them as stepping stones to prove the power of God. First love cries out, just give me a mountain to climb and I'll climb it with Your help, God. That's first love. But first love is also vulnerable. It needs to be protected. It needs to be reinforced. It needs to be nurtured. When I perform a wedding ceremony with two people that are in love that want to be married and live the rest of their lives together, one of the things that I always try to point out in that wedding or in that ceremony is the love that you have today isn't going to just stay there all by itself. You have to work at it. You have to make it happen. It takes effort. It takes energy. And I've met with people that have had problems over the years of their marriage and some have come almost to the end and they're about ready to give up. And they need to get back to what they originally had. Because love, you see, when, it is, when it's real love stretches out its arms and rolls up its sleeves and helps the hurting. 
It isn't selfish. It doesn't look at it, it's all about me. And many times when I've talked to people over the years, the problem is one spouse or the other or both, all of a sudden it's all about them. They don't care about the other person's happiness or joy or comfort or needs. All they're concerned about is what I'm not getting. What is not for me. And that's not and we need to understand that part of marriage and part of having true love for God takes effort. There are going to be times in our life as a Christian that we pray and we pray and we pray and it just doesn't seem that God answers that prayer. Do we give up on God? There will be times that things go wrong, that we have a challenge after challenge, and we think that, oh no, are they ever going to stop? And I'm living a faithful life. Why is this happening to me? Do we give up on God? No, we keep on keeping on. We keep working at it. And we what do we do? If you want to get out of that situation, you start to look at self. Why don't I have the love that God had, that I should have for God? God still loves me just as much as He did when I first discovered that He loved me. He loves me just as much. What's wrong with me? Oh, we're not supposed to think that way in our society today. But that's the way we need to think. We need to look at ourselves. What's wrong? What happened to me? When did I start taking those little steps? Don't wait till you fall off the cliff. Start asking yourself, why am I headed to the cliff? Listen to Paul. Paul, I think, is an amazing example for us of first love. Paul recognized that he owed everything that he had to God. Again and again, he calls himself a chief of sinners. He may not use those words every time, but it's a point that he makes very often in the Scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12-15, through 15, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, an injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul, you can look at his life and he realized what he had done to Christ, what he had done to his church, and yet he sees the mercy that God extended to him, the privilege of being a Christian, and he loves the fact that God still loved him even though the Scripture says in Acts chapter 8 that He made havoc of the church. That's the body of Christ. But God still loved him. Loved him enough that he could be a child of his. And Paul realizes the situation that he was in. Brethren, do we look at the situation that we were in before we became a Christian and appreciate the fact that God's given us an opportunity to have salvation because He loves us? 
First Corinthians chapter fifteen and verse nine. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Once again, he points out what he did. He never forgot what he did and was grateful that that Christ loved him enough to die for him. Brethren, Jesus died because he loves you. God sent him to this to the cross because he loves you. Paul saying, "I don't even deserve to be called an apostle." <clears throat> he was always very much aware of who he was and what he had done, and he's overwhelmed that God could love someone like him. Do we ever have the attitude that I'm better than someone else? We're no better than Paul. We're no better than any other sinner. We're all that are Christians have been washed in the blood of Christ. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 14, when he thinks about the love that Christ has for him, he calls himself a debtor to God. He realizes that what he's been given makes him indebted to God. Oh no, you can't confuse that and think that he's trying to say, well, you earn your salvation, you can buy it. That's not what he's saying. He realizes the responsibility that he has now that he accepted that invitation. But notice that he's not only a debtor to God, he's a debtor to the Jews, to the Greeks, and to the barbarians. He realized because what that love that God extended to him that he needed to extend that love to other people. In other words, because he was so wondrously loved by God, he owed it to God to share the wonderful love that he had with others. That wonderful first love caused Paul to write these amazing words in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh." Do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear the love that he has? He's so much in love with God and consequently in love with his brothers and sisters that he's willing to be cursed and go to hell himself if it would mean that they would be saved. He was willing to sacrifice Himself so that His brothers and sisters, His Jewish brothers and sisters, could be saved. Moses prayed the same kind of prayer in the wilderness after the people rebelled against God. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 31-32, through 32, it says, Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold 
Yet now, if Thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray Thee, out of Thy book which Thou hast written. In other words, Moses was saying his love for God was so great and his love for his people was so deep that he was willing to offer himself in their place. Blot me out, but forgive them. That's first love. That's the unselfish quality of first love. My second question is this. How do you lose something as exciting and as wonderful as first love? I would think that we would take good care of love and never take a chance on losing it. That's what I try to stress when people want to get married. What you're feeling today, you're going to have to work at that and keep that alive. But we can lose it. And sometimes it just disappears, vanishes, goes away, but how does that happen? I think Jesus gives us an answer. How does our love for Him dwindle away, fade away, disappear? Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12, and because of iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Did you hear that? That's how sin works. Not by taking giant steps from virtue into corruption, but little steps at a time. And as wickedness increases, this once wonderful, warm, unselfish, vibrant love in our life begins to grow cold like an amber that has been taken out of the fire and set off to the side, and it begins to cool. And before long, that fire dies out. Scripture uses the marriage relationship as an illustration many times. And I want to do the same thing. You know, two people meet and they fall in love and they spend precious time with each other, talking about each other, sharing the hopes and dreams with each other, what we're going to do, how we're going to live, how happy we're going to be, all these wonderful things that are going to happen. And when they're apart, what do they think about? Some of you that are married, before you got married, when you were apart, what did you think about? Did you think about your girlfriend or your fiancé? I'm going to imagine that most of you did. Why? Because you were in love. You cared about that individual. And you may have been at work, you may have been at school, you may have been somewhere, but your mind would always go back to that person that you were in love with that you were talking about spending the rest of your life with. There may have been times that you even pulled out a a picture to remind yourself of how beautiful and how wonderful life was going to be with that individual. The love just seemed to grow and mushroom. And then one day, you became husband and wife. You built that little cocoon of love about yourselves. 
And he said, well, we'll always be together. And life is just going to be so wonderful. But after the honeymoon was over, there were jobs to go to. There were appointments that needed to be kept. There were stresses that had to be dealt with. There were arguments and problems and family feuds and fusses that you had to face. And all of those things pull on us until soon the demands become so overwhelming that the love relationship begins to suffer. You know what I'm talking about? Seen that happen? And then one day you look across the table at each other and you think, that's not the person that I'm married. You're a stranger. And I don't even know you anymore. And what's happened is your love has been starved. It wasn't nurtured. It wasn't fed. It wasn't protected. You've allowed all the problems of the world to pull at you to the point where you didn't take care of that love. Because it didn't receive the daily nourishment it needed to grow healthy and strong. That's kind of the way it was at Ephesus, wasn't it? So many good things, and yet they had forsaken their first love. How many marriages today that have existed for a long time, a lot of good things that have happened in it, but there's really no love. Don't care about each other. Oh, you have a nice house, you got a nice car, several kids. Lots of success, lots of good. Same thing with the church at Ephesus. A lot of good things. But they lost their first love. Third question is this. How do we find a love that's been lost? How do we find it again? Well, Jesus gives us an answer in Revelation 2 and verse 5. He gives us a prescription that is very simple and very direct. Here's what He says we need to do. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. Remember where you had it last. Remember where you were at the beginning. Do you know where something is when you lose it? You ever lost your keys? Ever lost your glasses? Maybe a pair of shoes? Can't find it? Can't find them? They're wherever you left them at. Don't you love that question when you're trying to find your keys and you're kind of in a hurry and you can't find them anywhere and your your spouse, my wife, says, well, where did you leave them? Well, if I knew where I left them, then I would not be looking for them. So, you know, those are some of the stresses in life. But the point is, they are wherever I left them. The glasses, wherever I left them. The shoes, wherever I left them. And I have to go back and I have to find them. 
And if I can remember where that was, it's a little easier. And sometimes you start to think about, oh yeah, I know where they're at now. That's what we need to do when we lose our first love. It's that way with our love for God. If you lost it, guess where it is? It's wherever you left it. It's wherever you left it. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that if you have lost it, then remember where you lost it, where you had it last, go back and find it again. Do you know how many marriages could be saved if people would just make that effort to go back and figure out where they lost it? That's what Jesus is saying. Go back and find it. Was it in a church service? Was it in a moment of overwhelming temptation? And you felt God help you with Scripture to get through that situation? Where was the last time you were touched by the wondrous love of God? Wherever it was, if you lost it, it's still there. God hasn't moved. So I mentioned earlier, it was Samson who moved away from God. God departed because he couldn't stand to be where God was or where Samson was doing evil. So God doesn't depart because we're doing what's right. He can't be around sin and wickedness. God hasn't moved and He's waiting for you to come back to become reacquainted with Him. But then He also says something else. The second thing that Jesus said is repent and do thy first works. That word repent is a word that is greatly neglected today. Repentance means that we turn, we change. We do what is right. We've got to have godly sorrow to have the kind of repentance that the Bible talks about. Sorry for what we've done to God. And to stop doing those things. And when we look in the New Testament, we can see that when John the Baptist went out and he started preaching in the wilderness, what was the first thing out of his mouth? Repent. When the 70 went out two by two, what was the first words out of their mouth? Repent. And when God's prophets stood before a rebellious nation and they were speaking with His authority, the first words out of their mouth was, Repent. Jonah went to Nineveh. What was the first words out of his mouth? Repent. Brethren, we need to hear those words again today. People need to repent. They need to change. And sometimes it's us that need to change. It's our life. It's me. It's you. We're the problem. You see, repentance is a strong word and it has lots of implications. When you repent, you look at your sin. You see how ugly it is. You don't blame it on someone else. You don't try to shift it off somewhere else. You accept the responsibility for it yourself. And you see how ugly it is and how horrible it is. And you don't try to deny it. 
You don't blame it on someone else or something else. It's not because of your circumstances. It's not because of what so-and-so did to you. It's a choice that you made yourself. It's your burden. You made it. You need to face it. And that's what Jesus is saying. And finally, you come with no pretense before God and say, God, I can't carry it and it's too heavy for me. And like the prodigal son when he was in that pig pen and he realized the situation that he was in, he said, I'll go to my father. He said, I'm going to go home. And I'm going to admit my sin. And the father was waiting for him. And when he got home, there was joy. Why? Because the son realized what he had done. It wasn't the father's fault. It wasn't his older brother, as honorary as his older brother was. It wasn't their fault. It was his sin, his choice. And he didn't come pretending that he was some, I'm your son. He came back wanting to be a hired servant. But notice in that story, the father says no. He returned him to his status as a son. God helps us. And that's when healing takes place. And that's when love is restored. When we go back to where we lost it. You can travel in various parts of this country and you can see ghost towns. Many, for many years, we went to the Smoky Mountains on vacation. We'd go camping and look at different sites and waterfalls and all those kind of things. And one service when we were at the Gatlinburg Church of Christ, one of the members asked, have you ever seen Millionaire's Row? I said, no, never heard of it. And so we investigated and we found the place that is called Millionaire's Row. That's what's on the screen behind me. Millionaire's Row. It's an abandoned area where people that used to have lots of money would go and spend their summers because it was cooler there in the mountains than it was in the cities where they lived. Back at a time when the air condition wasn't so prevalent as it is today. But as you walk through those buildings, some of them you can't get into. Most of them you can only look through the door. But in some of those buildings you saw that animals had taken over, wild animals had moved in. Very destructive. You can see in one that a tree was growing up like in the living room, come up through the roof. It had grown because it had been neglected all that time. I've read that they're trying to restore some of those old buildings. They've tore down several of them. I would imagine that that one there in the corner is one of them that they tore down. But that's about what it looked like when we walked through it the first time. But if you have a good imagination, you can stand on the porch and look into those houses and you can hear the laughter. You can see the joy. You can hear people talking. You can see the dogs barking or hear the dogs barking. Birds singing. 
and all the wonderful things that take place when people are having fun and enjoying life. But as you can see, when they were abandoned, with every passing season, the buildings collapsed, more weeds grew, more trees sprung up, more animals moved in, and they took over the ruins where a thriving town once stood. A ghost town is nature's testimony that once something has emptied, destruction and death follow unless the void is filled. Brother, when our love for God goes away in our heart, something else moves in. And I would imagine that when that was a thriving place, that there would be times that weeds would grow. The wild animals would try to come into the house. But it didn't happen. Why? Because someone drove them out. Someone got rid of them. The repairs that needed to be done were done in a timely manner. The work that it took to keep it in shape took place. Brethren, the same is true in our hearts. If you don't want to lose that first love, you have to maintain it. You have to keep it going. And I hope that when people are staying home, that they're like that that couple in love. When can we go back? What are we going to do when we go back? Do I miss them? And I'm afraid that there's some that might not be missing anybody. Where's your love for Christ? Is it still the same today as it was when you obeyed the Gospel? Has it gotten stronger? Or has it gotten weaker? Like the ghost towns, if a person's not filled with the life of Christ... He'll be filled with something else. And the end result will be death and decay. Be thankful that Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Jesus came to give us life. My friend, if you've not experienced the love of God, you need to obey the Gospel today. Because Jesus died for you. God sent Him to die on the cross because He loves you and me. And because of that love, He's made it possible that our sins can be washed away by His blood. And this morning, you can have your sins washed away by His blood. If you're willing to repent of your sins and confess the name of Christ and be buried with our Lord in baptism, to have your sins washed away, you can become a child of God today. And like the Ethiopian eunuch, you can go on your way rejoicing, but don't let that joy, don't let that fire burn out. Don't let it disappear. Don't let it go away. Feed that fire. Nurture that fire. And grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This morning, if you need to respond to the invitation, you have that opportunity while we stand and sing.